0: If you have a Bible, um, we're going to be in a few different places tonight. But if you want to be in a place where we're going to spend a little bit more time, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter six to go and get there. Um, but we are going through a study uh, right now on called Loveology, uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about uh, love, marriage, dating, sex, uh, men and women, uh, sexual identity. Uh, lots of things like that. And we are on our fourth week of this. And so if you're new with us tonight, you came for the exciting night. Um, I didn't know uh, how attendance was going to look tonight. I was like either everyone's going to be here or nobody's going to be here because tonight we're talking about sex. Um, so if you're new, welcome to ABC College. I promise this is not what we talk about all the time, but you know. It's in the Bible, as you're going to see, okay? so, um, <laughs> But really glad to have you all tonight. I hope this is not going to be a really awkward, uncomfortable night. My intention is not that. Uh, some of you who have been here for a few years have heard me say funny and unintentionally awkward things talking about sex and relationships before, hoping not to say anything about power tools, things like that tonight, okay? So if you were, if you were here with us, if you don't know, don't worry about it. Okay, just don't worry about it, okay? You don't need to know. Not my best days as a college pastor speaker. Okay, so um, anyway, but we're going to look at what the Bible has to say uh, about sex. Okay, but before we do that, I want you to think back to maybe middle school, maybe before that, and maybe that time that you had that awkward conversation with your parents about sex you know, maybe if you had the quote-unquote talk with your parents. So who here actually had a talk with their parents about what sex is? I'm just curious. Okay. All right. I honestly didn't. like. I think I was like playing Pokemon, you know, back in the day. And my parent, like my dad came in and I was like, hey, so you know about sex, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I heard some guys and they kind of explained it to me. He's like, okay, cool. Well, if you need a book, I think I, I can get a book for you. And that, that was like it. And I love my dad. He's a great dad. Dad, if you're listening to the podcast, I love you. Great dad, but that was that was it. That was like that's the only conversation I've ever had with my parents about sex ever, and um, and that was the talk. And you know, tonight the point is not to talk about what sex is. If you don't know, ask your parents. Okay, Um, don't ask me. I'm 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 a college pastor, not a parent to you. Okay, I'm kidding. But you know, we're not talking about what sex is. But tonight the goal is to, like the rest of our series, look at what the Bible has to say about sex, about sexuality. Things like that. So I hope it's going to be a beneficial um, night for us. Because honestly, you know, we, we view this topic as maybe an awkward thing to, uh, to have conversations about. But here's the thing. Our culture is not shying away from this conversation. And our, our culture is incredibly sexualized in every way. And so I think it's really important for us to see what the Bible has to say about this. Because God created sex. And it's a good gift from him, as we'll see. So I think it's important for us um, to talk about. All right? And really tonight, we're going to boil it down into three things, the three points about what the Bible has to say about sex. I hope it's helpful. And then we'll take some time to split up, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, into some separate gender groups to have more conversation and hopefully be a little bit easier environment to talk about this kind of stuff. Okay? But three things we want to look at tonight about what the Bible has to say about sex. First is this, is that sex is a good thing. That it's, as we say in the outline here, it's a good gift from God. It's a good gift from God, because too much of what we hear in the church, you know, I don't know what your experience has been in the church before, but I know a lot of maybe what I heard in the past was was negative about sex. It was, hey, don't do that, you know, don't look at that, you know, don't touch that girl that way, you know, I just all this negative stuff that I heard, you know, that and all I heard really was mainly negative things, and that brings a lot of shame and dirtiness and, and kind of negative light to really what the Bible calls a beautiful thing. And I get there's good intentions behind that, and we have really good intentions in the church of talking about sex in the way it is to cherish it. But I think it's important for us to, like, my outline tonight, even the way I worded it, like everything is positive in the way we're going to talk about this, although we'll get into other things about sex as well with the Bible. But it's important to know that sex is a good gift from God. Let me give you a few examples. We won't look at all the things in the Bible about it. But consider even previous weeks and what we've talked about. Consider Genesis 1 and 2. We've seen before Genesis 131 that God creates everything including human beings including their sexuality and he calls it what very good Right? He calls it very good It's not like God was in the midst of creating Adam He took a coffee break for a minute and Satan shows up and slaps a penis on Adam and, and like runs off and God gets back And it's like, oh my gosh, like what is that thing? You know, like it's not like that happened. God created every part of our bodies and sexuality and Yes, I just said penis in front of all you It's you know we're adults, okay? You know, we're adults. Um, so here's the thing. So that, that's a good thing that God has given us, okay? So Genesis one thirty-one, It's good. One twenty-eight, We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Genesis one twenty-eight, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Spoiler alert, you can't have kids without sex, okay? So God commanded them to have sex because it's a good thing. Genesis 2.25, we looked at it a few weeks ago, that Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. They were naked and not ashamed, Like we said, uh, Jewish culture would read that back in the day and know exactly what that meant. Sex. They were not ashamed. It's a good gift that God has given us. And then one more reference I'll give you, and I'm not going to read all this tonight because it would probably make some of you blush, but Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 4. We looked at the chapters 1 through 3 last week. But if you read chapter 4, which you should read, we won't read it tonight, um, but if you look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4, Really, we saw chapter 3 was like the wedding, like he was had the procession and the king and Song of Solomon's coming to his bride. Well, honestly, chapter 4 is the sex scene of Song of Solomon, and there's a lot of poetic imagery there, you know, so there's a lot to read into, but really in Song of Solomon chapter 4, the king, the groom, describes his bride and he compliments her from head to toe. He says very romantic things like, your teeth are like a flock of sheep. And your neck is like the Tower of David, you know, which is not a compliment to any girl today. Um, but in their culture, don't, guys, never call your girlfriend, like, says he has sheep teeth. Don't say that, okay? She's not, okay, not gonna win you any points, okay? Um, but really, if you think about their agricultural setting and their culture, really, the Song of Solomon, especially chapter four, is powerful because he's using language, sexual thing, and really kind of a very sexual view of her, but he's not being crass. He's really being poetic, and it's beautiful, and it's really genius. And as long as Solomon chapter 4 goes on to describe the wedding night, and once the deed is done, we see in chapter 5, verse 1, there's this voice that speaks in. This voice that speaks in, it doesn't really have a, a name, but it says this. It says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And what does that teach us? Well, first off, it teaches us Beyonce wrote Drunk in Love after reading the Bible. Okay, but second thing it teaches us is that, you know, who's speaking there? Well, it may be God speaking over them. It may be creepy to think this. It may be some other couple, you know, like some family, you know, friends speaking over them. I'm not really sure about that, okay? But the point is that whoever's speaking over the couple after they've consummated their wedding or their marriage and had sex, they speak over them and say, listen, this is good. Like, drink to the full of this. This is a good, beautiful thing. There's no shame in this. This is good. Okay, because sex is a good thing. But the issue that we have these days, and really since Genesis 3, is that we like to take uh, good things, good gifts from God, and we turn them into God things. We take good things, but turn them into God things. We try to make them little g gods. And that's exactly what's happened in our culture and for a long time. Even Genesis 3, right? When Adam and Eve, they choose tasting the fruit over the presence of God. And immediately, you know, sinners the world, and it's affected even us today. If you look at the book of Romans, um, Romans 1, Verses 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And that's true because we're created to worship God. We're wired to worship. Either we worship God or we worship something else. We're wired to worship. But many times we get that wrong and we choose to worship, like Paul says, the creation instead of the creator. And we see this very clearly in the way that our culture wants to worship sex and sexuality. And really, Paul says, in the way he uses it, that the first form of misguided worship Paul mentions is in Romans. It's a great example of how our worship is wrong. And in Paul's day, in the city of Ephesus... Uh, there was a temple to the the god of sex, the god of sexuality. Uh, Her name was Aphrodite. And in that temple, it housed a thousand prostitutes that you could go to and you could worship by having sex with this prostitute. It was supposed to be for fertility and things like that. But they would worship the god of sex through sleeping with a prostitute. But today, we get this, you know, we worship the god of sex a little bit differently. We don't go to, you know, uh, I hope you don't go to a prostitution temple. Um, But we worship the god of sex today through... TV marketing through movies, through pornography, through you know strip clubs, through fashion, and so on and so on. That we sexualize and we worship sex and we glorify our bodies and we put all this attention on it and we worship in this way. And the dark side of this is that really, when sex becomes what we worship, it does the opposite of what we think it's going to do. It does the opposite because instead of bringing pleasure and instead of bringing freedom, like we think it is, it really brings slavery. It brings slavery. Because we become a slave to our body's cravings. We become a slave to pleasure and to feeling. And that's why the Bible has such strong things to say about sex in both how good it is and how it should be cherished. Because you know, culture says that Christians are very prudish when it comes to sex. How, you know, how dare we limit our freedom and limit the amount of life we can enjoy by not sleeping with someone until we're married to them. But they say that that limits our freedom. That our ethic is, of sex is, just, no, just don't do that. It's a dirty thing. It's bad. And you don't do that. But really, if you think about freedom, freedom is the ability ability to do what you really want to do. And when you worship the God of sex, really you're limiting your freedom because you become a slave to pleasure. You become a slave to what you think you want when really it's just dominating your life. But in Christ, we could be set free from this slavery. And instead, as a Christian, we can view sex as the good gift from God that it is and not be a slave to it but enjoy it as a gift from God, but also know it's meant to point us to really the ultimate place of satisfaction in life, and that's knowing God and having a relationship with him. And so, and so if God is the giver of the gift of sex, it means we also have to go to him and to the Bible to see how we're supposed to go about using sex, viewing sex, expressing our sexuality, all things like that. All right, So That's our first thing we see. Second thing is this. First, sex is a good gift from God. Second, sex is more than just physical. It's more than just physical, because sex is a good gift from God. But if that's the case, then why avoid premarital sex? Like, if it's a good thing that the Bible uplifts, then why not just have plenty of it and enjoy it and have freedom in that? Well, we look at 1 Corinthians 6 to see a great answer to this question. So if you're there, um, we're almost there. But in 1 Corinthians 6, we see Paul writing to the church in Corinth addressing some of those questions. And, and really, in their context, the Corinthian church was wrestling with a lot of stuff. Really, they had this, this one guy in the church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. That's a different kind of issue, okay? Um, hopefully, I'm not, I never about to preach a sermon about that being wrong, okay? Um, but in that church, they were struggling with some dualism in the church, this philosophy called dualism. It really began uh, with Plato, people like that. But they had this view that was very heavy in the culture at the time that the physical world was bad and that the spiritual world was good. And that they were very separate places. And the the physical world and the spiritual world were separate things. And in the end, all that mattered is the spiritual. I'm not a philosopher, so if you're a philosophy major and you are criticizing my definition, it's very amateur. I get it. Okay, but that's basically the idea. is that the spiritual world, physical world, separate things. All that really matters in the end is the spiritual. That our bodies are like shells for our souls. The, The physical doesn't matter that much in the end. So you combine that philosophy... With the fact that in Corinth, they were known for their prostitution. There was like a prostitution hub where sailors would come across the island in order to sleep with prostitutes. You combine that philosophy with the prostitution hub, and you have many in the church who were thinking this. They're thinking, hey, you know, what's wrong with having sex with a temple prostitute? You know, it's just physical. You know, it's just my body. It doesn't really matter when it comes to my spiritual relationship. It's just physical, nothing more. And we see Paul's answer to that. In 1 Corinthians 6. So read with me. Uh, start at verse 12. We're going to read through uh, verse 20. And see some of his thoughts on this. Okay? So six twelve through 20. I'm in the ESV. Paul said this. He says, All things are lawful for me. That's a quote. He's quoting them back to um, themselves. But all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. Quote again. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. They say, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And we saw this, right? The two will become one flesh, a cod. They become one. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So much there we could talk about. Let me give you just a few thoughts on this, because look at Paul's response to this wrong view of sex. His wrong view of sex, his uh, response is not, hey, just don't do sex, don't have that because it's a sin. But instead, he gives them a a better and a more complete vision of how God has designed sex to work. You know, he says, don't you see? Sex is more than just a physical act. It's about two people becoming one. So really, the truth is, is that there's no such thing as casual sex. That when you have sex with a person, it involves all of you becoming one with another person. And inside of marriage, that's a beautiful thing. You know, marriage is, uh, sex in marriage is like a gravitational force that keeps you in sync with each other. It keeps you intimate. It's a powerful and beautiful thing. But outside of marriage, sex is destructive. That really, it damages your soul. It turns a human being that's made in God's image it turns them into an object of your sexual gratification. Something that you just use for your own pleasure. And that's why dating couples that have sex early in the relationship, like we said last week, you know, a relationship that should have maybe lasted three weeks or three months becomes three years. And then when they eventually break up, because they brought sex in before marriage, the, the breakup feels like a divorce because really they're losing a part of themselves. They become one with somebody and now they're being cut in half because they become one with them. And it damages and, and hurts your soul. And that's not what God has for us at all. You know, One illustration I've heard before is this. Um, it's like a sticky note. I have a sticky note here. If you like, put these things on like all kinds of different surfaces, you place it on one thing, and it sticks. You place it on somewhere else, it sticks. Then you go to do that, and it sticks. But after a while, it kind of eventually loses its stickiness, and it's no good anymore. And it's kind of the same idea when it comes to sex, is that when we join ourselves to another person, we're becoming one with them. But the more that we do that, especially with different people, that the power begins to erode, and it becomes much less what God has designed it to be, and it becomes something that really just erodes on our soul, that we lose pieces of ourselves over time as we join ourselves to different people. And that's not God's heart and design for us at all. Because sexual sin has a power to destroy us and hurt us on a deeper level than anything else. And God doesn't want that for us. He's for our joy in sex. And that's why he's given us the good design. He doesn't want us to bring future baggage into our marriage. He wants us to bring joy and pleasure and enjoy sex with our spouse. But we have to do that by following God's guidelines for sex. And the third thing we see is this. Is that sex is something to be protected until marriage. Because sex is created by God to say to your spouse. is to say to them, I belong completely and exclusively to you in every part of my being. Every bit of my being belongs to you. It was designed by God for two individuals who are completely committed to each other in every way to come together. That they're committed socially, financially, emotionally, in every way. And that's only found in marriage. Because sex is the most intimate way possible to give yourself entirely to a different person. So when you've given your whole life to that person in marriage, then it makes complete sense and it's safe and it's good to give yourself to them sexually. But if you haven't committed in that way, then joining to them is dangerous, and it can bring tons of harm. So we haven't committed ourselves wholly to a person in marriage. That's why God says we can't join ourselves sexually to them. It's not that God is a prude, and he's out there just to ruin your Friday night. It's because God is out there for your joy, that he knows what is good for you. He knows how he's designed sex. He's not trying to rob us of anything. He's giving us healthy and good parameters. And he wants us to stay away from sexual sin that will wreck our lives. He doesn't want that for us. And really, God's word is not the only thing that says this. A lot of sociological research is finding this to be true as well. Studies keep coming out over and over again, showing that the people that have the best sex lives are not the young, single people going around and sleeping with as many people as possible, but really people that have the best sex lives are the monogamous, heterosexual, married couples who have had little to no sexual partners before marriage. But culture in Hollywood will tell us differently. That the older you get, the more boring sex gets. You know, it just gets tired and you get older and it's just lame. But no, really studies show that people that have the most enjoyment and say their sex lives are the best are those who have been committed to each other for years and had little to no partners before marriage. And our culture wants to sell us a different lie, but that's not true. So don't steal from your future joy for a moment of pleasure now. God has something better for you. So one more set of verses, and we'll begin to close up tonight and discuss. But how do we approach sexuality then for you right where you're at right now? If you're not married, um, but most of us in this room aren't, but if you're not married, how do we... Chapter 4. We'll look at verses 3 through 8. This is Paul yet again uh, writing about sexual temptation in the church and giving them a better and a higher ethic of what sex is. In 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3, Paul says this. If you ever wonder what the will of God for your life is, here's one of them in the Bible. This is is God's will for your life. Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There's the will of God for your life. There's one of them. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, a.k.a. those who don't believe in God, who do not know God, That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, knowing that God is for our joy in sex, how do you approach sexuality right now if you're not married? Three things from these verses. Three things. First, you control your body and abstain from sexual immorality. What the Bible in Greek would call porneia. Porneia. And that, that word is really a junk drawer word. It's a very blanket term. It gets thrown around a lot in the Bible. And it really means any form of sexuality outside of marriage. Any form of sex outside of marriage. It means sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It means oral sex, adultery, adult movies, strip clubs, any form of pornography. Any of that That's all porneia. It's a very blanket word. And the Bible tells us to flee from that. To run from it. Not because God is, you know, after ruining our fun or whatever, because God is for our joy, and God knows that stuff brings damage and destruction to our souls. He wants us to flee from it. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we spent a whole year looking at it last year. In Matthew five twenty-eight, Jesus says this about it. He says, everyone who looks at someone with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in their heart so we see that even pornea is not just to act like a sexual act that can be outside of our body or with our body but even in our hearts that it involves that as well so to guard against porneia we actually have to guard against lust as well you know it's it's natural to notice if someone is attractive that's how we're wired But to lust is to move beyond a look, and it's to have the look after the look. It's to look at someone and begin to think sexual thoughts about them. And Jesus says the moment you think those things and you move to that place, you're committing adultery in your heart. You're committing pornea in your heart. So we have to guard even our thoughts in this. And we have to guard the way we think about other people. That's the first thing, that we flee from pornea before marriage. When it comes to dating before marriage, we talked about this a little bit last week, But when it comes to dating before marriage, we work not to wrong our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because notice how Paul says in those verses. He says not to transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. And that word brother in context really means brother and sister. It's a term for any other follower of Jesus. It's not just for males. So he's talking about any other follower of Christ. And so this is saying as you date another Christian, your goal goal is to treat them as a brother or sister in Christ. That word wrong there is the Greek word pleonectane. You don't have to say that, okay? But the pleonectane literally means this. It means to take advantage of or to steal from. To steal from. So Paul's saying that when we have sex or we get too physically intimate with someone we're not married to, then we're stealing from them. What are we stealing? We're stealing joy from their future. We're stealing pleasure from marital intimacy in the future for maybe a moment of pleasure today that we're stealing from our brothers and sisters. So in your dating relationships, you have to ask the question, would I be okay if someone else treated my brother or sister the way I'm treating this person in this relationship? Would I be okay with that? If you end up breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend and they marry somebody else, would you be able to maybe one day meet their future husband or wife, look them in the eye without a twinge of guilt and say, I treated your husband, your wife with honor? before God in the way that we're related physically. That's the kind of question we have to ask. We can't ask the question of how far is too far? Can we do this? Can we not do that? It's the wrong question. We have to ask questions like this. Am I thinking about the future? And am, am I trying to steal from future joy for both myself and them for a, a moment of pleasure in the present? Because that's what it looks like to honor our brothers and sisters in Christ with our body. And the third thing we have to see from these verses is that we also have to guard from the plague of pornography in our culture today. You've heard me talk about it before, but porn is a destructive, destructive thing in our culture. Porn use leads to a ton of physical, mental, and emotional problems. It can lead to incredibly unhealthy expectations for sex in marriage. It brings tons of baggage into your marriage. For guys specifically, porn can crush your wife's self-image and make her feel like she isn't good enough. Porn makes you view other people as a sexual object for your own gratification instead of being made in the image of God like they are. Uh, we have to remember that even the pornography industry is something that we support when we view porn. When we look at it, we support a sinful system that encourages lust. It destroys marriages. It destroys relationships, families. There are thousands of women in the pornography industry who are basically sex slaves that have no other choice but to do that for a living. And we support sex slavery when we view pornography. That we support that system. And then if you look at research studies, we, we see that pornography literally destroys your brain. It wreaks havoc on your brain. Studies have found that a brain addicted to porn is more deteriorated than even a brain addicted to heroin. That pornography addiction is worse for your brain than even heroin addiction. That's why there's groups called Fight the New Drug because that's what pornography is. It's, it's a new drug that's wreaking havoc in our culture. We have to fight it. We have to flee from it. And in living this way, we see it in Paul's verses here, in living this way, we reflect the holiness of God. And we live this way because we're God's people. We're called to be holy. And to be holy means that we reflect God's character in the way that we live. We reflect God's character to the world. And we don't reflect God's character well when we selfishly abuse and misuse the gift of sex he's given us. Because our, our sex is all about yourself. has a much higher and a much better view of sex. Really, the Bible has the best view of sex. Because it's not just a feeling. It's not just a pleasure, it's not just an experience, but it's a way for us to express our love fully to someone that we're fully committed to, completely. And even in that experience, we, ex- we experience the love of a self-giving God as we give ourselves to our spouse. And it's a beautiful thing, but we have to view it that way. So with all that said, we're about to wrap up, but just one more thing. What if you've messed up? You know, what if you're going here hear you're like, Kyle, you know, I, I, I've heard all this, and you know something's happened to me in my past, or I've made some mistakes in my past, and you know... You know, what do I do? Like, is God just really disappointing with me? You know, am I broken? Am I damaged goods? You know, what do I do? Well, I want to say, first off, that is not true. That look at one verse with me. Actually, I'll just quote it for you. You've heard it before. But First John chapter one, a book all about love. John says this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. Purify us from all unrighteousness. Because yes, there, there will be consequences probably for our actions and for your actions. But that doesn't mean that you have to walk in guilt and shame because of your past. No matter how far you've, how far you've gone, how much you've messed up. Know this: Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You can't out his grace. So bring it to God. Don't hold it in and don't pretend it didn't happen. But confess it to God. Be honest with God about how you've messed up. And know that he promises in those very verses to forgive you, to purify you, to make you clean. To make you clean. Clean before him. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Only purity. You're not broken. You're not damaged goods. You are loved by God. As Colby says a lot, you're seen, you're known, you're loved by God. He cares for you. He wants to restore you. He wants to walk with you through that. So don't push away from him. But draw near to him, and like scripture says, he will draw near to you. So don't push away. You're loved, you're seen. So we're going to wrap up tonight with that and split up to discuss. But if you have any questions, you need to talk about any of this kind of stuff, if this has brought up some things in your life. Um, Haley and myself, we'd love to talk to you girls. Haley, would love to talk to you guys. I'd love to talk to you um, about anything going on with this. Um, we're here for you, okay? Um, and that can be tonight, it can be later. We'd love to get coffee, lunch, something like that, and, and talk um, or whatever, but just let just know that we're here for you.